1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Michael Moore about his new book, We Are All Whalers, The Plight of Whales and Our Responsibility. Relating his experiences caring for endangered whales, a veterinarian and marine scientist shows we can all share in the salvation of these imperiled animals. The image most of us have of whalers include harpoons and intentional trauma, yet eating commercially caught seafood leads to whales entanglement and slow death in ropes and nets. And the global shipping routes that bring us readily available goods often lead to death by collision. We, all of us, are whalers, marine scientists and veterinarian Michael More Contents, but we do not have to be. Well, Michael, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. All right, so as we have gone through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting a little bit on how has it affected you and your work, and also maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
0: Right. Well. It's been, I've been very, very fortunate because I was able to uh, upstate from, from my place of work and stay at home and, and work fully from home. So I, I was able to dodge the COVID bullet so far. Um, it's been a challenge in terms of maintaining the sort of psychology of how one interacts with colleagues and how one's brain works in largely isolation. Einstein once said that um, nothing more pitiful than a bright mind in a room alone. And that has come back to haunt me quite regularly. Uh, But I think in comparison to people that are just starting out their career, I mean, I turned 65 this year and I have a lifetime of relationships, which I was able to use and draw on in the past couple of years of, of the pandemic. And my colleagues who are in grad school or, you know, freshly minted postdocs or whatever they may be, their chances and their opportunities to network in person, obviously, have been seriously curtailed. So I, I feel very fortunate that I was at my at this end of the career rather than at the beginning in terms of being able to coast through what has been a tough time for everybody, really. And certainly uh, in terms of Those people that are in service work that have to show up to do what has to be done, whether it be stocking shelves in a grocery store or wherever, um, those of us that have had the opportunity to do our work remotely have been extraordinarily blessed. And so it has, I think, um, further accentuated the disparities in our society, which we need to be very much aware of as we try to figure out how we all live together and uh, in a supportive way in, in the times moving forward.
1: Uh, did you teach any students during this time? Did you teach classes?
0: Uh, no, I, I haven't taught classes for a while. Uh, I'm prima- I'm a research scientist primarily. I, I do have students uh, o- over the years. Uh, right now, uh, last year, I had a guest student from the University of Kiel, and she showed up to work in my lab, uh, must have been around March 1st. And by March 10th of last year, we looked at each other and said, you need to go And so she went back to Germany uh, just in time, really, before getting stuck here. And we had a delightful time uh, where we met at least once a week virtually. And she um, did a beautiful thesis study and uh, was able to have a paper that's in revision now. And it'll be a significant contribution to the science that she was doing. So in that regard, I felt like I, I was able to work well despite the constrictions that we were facing. But uh, my, my lab is small now. It's just myself and, and the, the occasional guest at this point. So I did not have any major challenges in terms of supporting other employees either. So in, I have a, a lot of different um, collaborations going on, but they're all uh, at other institutions. And so they were uh, independent of, of my management as such. So that really wasn't a challenge for me.
1: Yeah, what you said earlier would resonate really, really well with many of our listeners, uh, especially students who are just starting, for example, their degrees. and They didn't even have uh, uh, opportunities uh, to meet their classmates uh, during this year, which is really, really sad for many. So, yeah, thank you for making that point.
0: Yeah, and the other part of that is that when considering, you know, how much and how soon to go back to work, and I haven't done much of that yet at all, um, I, I feel it as a mentor and as a colleague to the community that I'm part of that the older people owe it to the younger people to show up and be present. And that's another whole piece to the, the equation that we all need to consider in terms of how this works going forward. But potentially, we should all agree to be at work on Mondays and Tuesdays or whatever it is so that there can be some degree of in-person interaction. But certainly, I have a long commute. And not having to commute has been a delightful thing.
1: Oh, that's a bit of a uh, sil- silver lining, I suppose. <laughs> yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure.
0: I I grew up in, in the UK, in, in the southern part of England, and my father was a, was a country doctor. My mother was a nurse by training, and together they took care of um, the community that we lived in. It was a country community at that point. And I was very fortunate in the education that they gave me in terms of um, where I went to school in high school. And I I attended the University of Cambridge uh, as a pre-veterinary student and and got a veterinary degree at the University of Cambridge in England as well. And during that time, I pursued some interests I have and had in marine mammals. I was fortunate to work with a, a good friend, Hal Whitehead, In Newfoundland when he was doing his his PhD studies at the University of Cambridge and so I spent time with him on a small sailboat uh, studying the behavior and ecology and biology of humpback whales in Newfoundland uh, on the east coast there and that uh, opened my eyes to the the wonder really of uh, what it means to have a personal understanding of bits of the life of these creatures. So large whales, such as humpback whales, are exquisitely adapted for the physiological needs and challenges that they face in being aquatic mammals, uh, how they dive and hold their breath and can operate for varying amounts of time, depending upon the species underwater, how they can live in very cold water, how they have coats of blubber that enable that. And all of the different pieces that come together are um, a true wonder to myself and many other people and so as a veterinarian i was trained to study animals in health and disease and to examine diseased animals to figure out why they are sick and how they need to be treated and how to prevent their conditions from occurring in the first place so that combination of the clinical the pathological the physiological and And the behavioral side of um, my exposure to marine mammals as an undergraduate um, was somewhat unusual. And so it opened doors that maybe I wouldn't have had if I hadn't spent some time on a small boat in Newfoundland studying humpback whales. That, That study then led on to migrating to the Caribbean as the animals did in the winter. So we spent some time on another sailboat in Silver Bank, which is a, offshore coral bank north of the Dominican Republic. And there we saw the same humpbacks that we have been seeing in Newfoundland, carving and breeding and studying them there. So at the time, I was very much a torn between you know going off and doing a PhD, studying uh, whale behavior or whale um, ecology, or completing my veterinary degree because I, I'd spent some time out of the veterinary system to, to work in, in Newfoundland and the Caribbean. And so that um, that led me on to a, a crossroads, and I decided to go back and finish my veterinary degree, and I'm very glad I did, because it gave me, again, a fairly unusual perspective of um, health and disease, and diagnostics, and clinical evaluation of live animals, and, and also the evaluation of, of dead animals in terms of why they died. and. and what the causes were and so on. So by the time I'd finished veterinary school I I I was I I guess I had the budding interests of being a um, a marine mammal veterinarian, a wildlife veterinarian and one of the experiences I had as a kid was I went to the London Zoo with my mother when I was maybe 8 or 9 and I I saw an orangutan in a cage and it was looking at me and I looked at him and I didn't want to be there and he didn't want to be there either. And so my um my willingness to use the training and the interests I had within the context of captive marine mammals was pretty low because that wasn't something that I, I, I felt that I could have a fulfilling life in. And, you know, I've potentially changed some of those attitudes somewhat, but still, I, I was um, very much, uh, focused on using the knowledge and the curiosity that I had in, in the wild um, life context. So that that sort of led me on, Um, you know, while I was in vet school, I I got to study a a pilot whale stranding in the Wash in England, and that led me to some connections to the International Whaling Commission, which is based in Cambridge in England. And they asked me to help them with a study that was funded to look at the efficacy of explosive harpoons in um, the fin whale industry in Iceland. So my first job as a veterinarian was on the deck of a whaling ship which in hindsight is somewhat bizarre to me in in, in my own perspective. But uh, I think any, any veterinarian graduating today would not necessarily put that as a likely item on the resume that they would be filling out at some point. So the question that I was asked to study there was the efficacy of explosive harpoons. And I talk about this in, in the book, We Are All Whalers, that that is coming out in, in October of this year. And obviously there were some very substantial um, questions about the ethics and morality and acceptability and the conservation biology and the animal welfare aspects of shooting explosive harpoons at large whales with the intent of killing them for their meat and other, other products. But once I'd got involved in the day-to-day routine working on this whale catching ship, um, all of those questions became um, somewhat abstract when I was uh, on a daily basis for about six weeks faced off against the challenge that I had committed to, which was to gather a data set on the efficacy of these harpoons in their in their use. And so some many of the the bigger questions had to be parked while I, I did what I could do to do the study. And the study related uh, that it was actually a remarkably efficient process, uh, taking seconds to minutes to kill these animals. Um, in so doing, I'm not really supporting or denying the, the value of doing that, but just as a, a number, it was striking to me that they weren't um, dying over a longer period. Uh, obviously, there's substantial trauma involved of a explosive grenade uh, penetrating the chest usually and exploding and sending shrapnel through the chest to damage these animals mortally. And uh, and so, but that, that was something that I did. I wrote it out with the colleague I was working with and then moved on. And, and I, I moved over to the U.S. and worked for a couple of years in a veterinary clinic to get qualified to be a veterinarian in the U.S. And then I started a more of an academic career, working in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, first at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And then I started to do a PhD in Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where I I still work today. So that's a bit of background. And I'm not sure if that's where where you wanted me to go, but here we are.
1: I wonder how much uh, sort of perseverance it took uh, for you, especially on those boats. It must not have been easy, uh, just even physically and mentally, to be uh, at sea.
0: Well, um, yeah, and the two boats that I've mentioned so far were a small sailing boat in Newfoundland and a whale catcher in in Iceland. And I I think culturally, they were both quite shocking to me. Uh, You know, I was a a somewhat shy, introverted uh, English school kid, and I got to hang out with um, a bunch of American friends who became friends very fast. And, you know, I there was some very different cultural norms that I wasn't necessarily aware of or um, sensitive to. So I, I got myself into all kinds of sociobiological trouble, but actually the, the, the business of being at sea and being on a boat, that wasn't a problem for me at all because I'd grown up doing that kind of stuff. So that was one of the reasons why I was useful to them because I could fix a boat, sail a boat and maintain a boat. So, you know, that was, um, that was the easy part. And again, that's true for the whaling ship too. You know, I, I felt very comfortable being on board the ship, um, but I was very uncomfortable with my uh, position in the hierarchy because I was being hired to um, have an opinion about how well these people did their jobs. And I didn't like that. That was rough. And it was amusing really because at the beginning of it all, Nobody spoke any English at all on the vessel, apart from myself. By the time they began to trust me a bit, a few weeks into the into the period, gradually one by one of them started to talk in English with me. They all spoke English, I suspect, and so um, that was that was fun. And you know, I got to go down to the engine room, which was a um, a steam-driven system. The whole thing was steam, which made it very quiet and an incredible engineering, both in terms of propulsion, but also in the engineering involved in the the whale-catching business is its like a giant fishing rod, really, is the way the whole ship is set up to be able to take the, the stress of, of hooking up with these animals. And so um, it was an extraordinary experience for me. And what I hadn't realized at the time, inevitably, was that in hindsight, what they were providing to me was, if you like, a positive control, a baseline for the experiences that I was yet to experience they undergo, which were to be looking at how, in other contexts, humans also kill large whales. So um, I mentioned that the seconds to minutes that these animals were dying. Once I finished my PhD, I started working more on the relationship between humans and marine mammals in the context of today's um, economy in the eastern seaboard of the US and Canada. And in that regard, I started to uh, look at dead whales, uh, dolphins, whales, seals, uh, humpback whales, North Atlantic right whales in particular, as to how they died. And one of the things that I figuratively and literally tripped over was rope. in as much as these animals were largely being killed either by being hit by ships or by getting entangled in fishing gear nets and in particular rope or, or specific lines that were being used to <clears throat> either catch fish in gill nets and uh, the sort of curtain of monofilament mesh that the fish would swim into and the whales would blunder into it as well and get wrapped up in the supporting ropes and the anchors and so on. Or the uh, the ropes that were used to haul the traps that were catching lobsters or crabs from the bottom up to the surface. And here, the, the sort of contrast in terms of what I'd learned in Iceland, which would turn my world upside down, because up until that point, I had a pretty reasonable understanding that there was a um, you know a case to be made that whaling was not a good thing. And I'm not saying it is a good thing, but it needed to be looked at once I got the experiences that I was getting latterly, in a more nuanced way, in as much as When we started to look at these whales, the right whales in particular, that had been entangled in rope, we were able to get the individual identification of these animals from the patterns of thickened skin and parasites on their head. Uh, The callosity patterns are what we use in North Atlantic right whales to identify individuals, and they've been photographed in life over the time period that they've been alive, from when they were a calf on through to when they died on the beach. So sometimes you had 20, 30 years of Life history that had been cataloged by my colleagues at the New England Aquarium to ha- put these deaths in context, in, in a temporal context. So, we, we would uh, quite often have information about photographs taken of these animals without any gear on them. And then a few months later, another photograph would be taken, and there was a rope wrapped around its head, and it was trailing a neck or a rope or whatever it was. And so we were able to look back at the life histories. And here the veterinarian and me starts taking a history and doing the exams on the beach of these dead animals and to get a much fuller story in terms of how these animals actually died. And so we were able to estimate the shortest and the longest time that the animal had been entangled from when it, when it was found dead. So if, say, it was 10 months before it died, it was found dead, it was gear-free, and then it was seen that it had six months before it died, it was seen with gear on it. Then somewhere between that 10- and six-month interval, we knew that the animal had picked up the gear, and we could get an estimate of how long it had been dead for with the gear on it. And so on average, we were able to show quite early on in the early 2000s that the average time from entanglement, assumed entanglement, to death was six months. So that realization really stopped me short because as a veterinarian, um, I care about individuals and I care about their animal welfare. And it's my job to, I've been trained to minimize the the pain and suffering these animals go through and to diagnose it and to treat it and to prevent it. And so really I've spent most of my life chasing one or more of those paradigms to do what I was trained to do and to do it in a way that was both as a veterinarian, uh, carrying and and veterinarians advocate for animals in an advocate advocacy way as well, but also as a scientist to do so objectively, quantitatively, and to you know, hypothetic you know, drive hypotheses and test them as to what was and wasn't significant in terms of how these animals were dying. So it, it was always a bit of a left brain right brain thing where the, the North Atlantic right whale was being looked at by Michael Moore, the the veterinarian, and Michael Moore, the scientist, and how those two perspectives um, added focus, potentially, and and perspective, or they conflicted. But most of the time, they added focus, I hope, and believe. So it became obvious to me that um, these animals, especially the ones that were being entangled, less so much the the vessel strikes, but they're still very significant, were a major conservation problem in terms of the survival of the species, but also a, a very significant concern in terms of the uh, the animal welfare of the individual because of this protracted death time you know they were taking as opposed to minutes or seconds uh, as a, as a whaling uh, mortality these these entanglement mortalities were taking up to six or an average of six months to die which shocked me and you know, i wasn't alone in being shocked that way but certainly i um I began to focus on that fact and the, the ramifications and the complexities and the basis for it in much of the work that I did in collaboration with a ton of other folks over the years. So that all led me to um, a need to be able to try and... Um, I'm sorry about the dogs there. Do you want to start again?
1: No, no, that's fine. You're a veterinarian.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so so that led me into the whole perspective of how to communicate those concerns. As a scientist, I was um, programmed to write peer-reviewed publications, and I'd done that in spades. We've published a lot of papers about different aspects of all of that. And I went to scientific meetings and actually opened the book. We are all whalers uh, sitting in an auditorium at SeaWorld in San Diego, an outdoor auditorium, uh, looking down on a pool of killer whales. And many of my colleagues who were at the same scientific meetings. this was an icebreaker. We were all getting together. And I was sitting at the top of the um, auditorium looking down on these, these whales and, and the trainers and my colleagues. And I was up in the cloud somewhere, literally and figuratively, trying to focus on why exactly I was there, what I was going to say in my talk tomorrow, and how is this all going to be. And I had this naive belief that people would listen to what I said and then the problem would go away because we'd all do something about it. And of course it didn't happen that way. I, I gave the talk and people asked questions and they rushed off to the next talk. And I was left standing there on the corridor thinking, okay, so what do I do now? And, you know, for a long time, many years, really, I kept on trying to drill down deeper into the details and the, the minutiae as to how these whales get entangled, where, where they get entangled, and what to do about it and so on. But, I never really successfully communicated these concerns to, on a broader basis. I wrote some review articles and some opinion pieces, but I always was in my comfort zone, which was the academic media, essentially. So this book, um, was, is my attempt to cross over into the, the mainstream of, of life and commerce and consumerism. Because essentially, and to, to attempt to communicate with those people, such as myself as a consumer, um, who either depend upon goods shipped by sea, and there are very few vegetarian, uh, excuse me, vegetarians who can claim that they don't depend upon stuff moved by ships, whether it be fuel or food or things you buy in a big box store from China or the Far East or wherever. <clears throat> so. I, I I tried in the book to uh, relate both the the questions of um, vessel strike and you know, goods moved by sea, and also seafood caught uh, with gear that requires rope in the water column, whether it be lobster or or snow crab or fish with caught with gill nets. So they're all risk factors for either ships causing collisions with whales or Fishing gear causing entanglements, and one of the pieces that um, I was ignoring significantly, and I think certainly the um, the managers for these problems, the, the politically driven management process, the conservation of these marine mammals, was we were all so heavily focused on mortality. You know, if we can just stop killing these whales, everything's going to be okay. But reality is that that's only potentially less than half of the problem, in as much as for every whale that gets killed by an entanglement, there's probably another 20 that get entangled in a sublethal way. So they get wrapped up in gear that may cause damage over a few days, weeks, or months, and then they can either get disentangled by by humans from that, or they can um, be hang on a second, change something here, cut out the noise. Um, so. Whether they can be um, entangled for a few days or a few months, but they finally get out of it, they may be disentangled by humans, but or they can wriggle out of it themselves. But during the time that these animals are sublethally entangled, they are undergoing a very significant cost, and variable cost, depending upon the severity of the entanglement, the sublethal entanglement. But what it can do is drain them of energy that they otherwise would use for the purpose of being a live, reproductively successful humpback whale or a right whale. So what we've seen is that an animal that gets entangled and is entangled for maybe 10 months or whatever before it gets disentangled will lose a substantial amount of weight. And it's just like Olympic athletes. If they are very, very skinny, they're not going to be very fertile. And so I think right whales have this innate in sense as to their sort of hormonal balance and their body condition balance that they don't appear to get pregnant unless they're adequately fat to do so. So if the entanglements have been causing drag and other factors such as infection and tissue damage and repair and all of that, these animals are not fit to get pregnant. And now, there's two sides to the recovery equation for a species like the North Atlantic right well. One is, are you killing too many animals? And two is, are you having enough carbs to more than balance that? And fixing the mortality problem, as I said, is only half the issue. And if their health is such that they're not getting fat enough to, to get pregnant, then you know, recovery isn't going to happen. And that is something that has um, definitely been a problem.
1: Yeah, for sure. So all of your realizations and all of your in-depth knowledge and expertise, but also the passion for whales uh, really are beautifully brought together in, in the book. We're all whalers. And I especially uh, uh, sort of appreciate that you very effectively pinpoint very specific issues that uh, uh, whales are facing. Like you say, it's not uh, just the mortality, but all of these issues that are even novel for, for many of us. But it's also quite relatable, isn't it? Like like you say, it's the ships that are carrying our products. So in some sense, we're all contributing to it.
0: Yeah. And one of the challenges I've always faced is trying to rationalize in my own mind why people are uninformed about these issues. And it's fault of people like myself, but it's also a fault of where these issues are actually happening. So if for instance a a live whale or a dolphin lands up on a beach and there's a bunch of beachgoers there watching what's going on they are hypercritical about how the the sort of marine mammal medics respond to it and if they euthanize the animal because it's suffering they get very critical and they they worry very very much about the the health and the wealth the welfare of of an individual animal that is in front of the noses that they can see. And it's natural. So I understand why. Whereas um, if an animal is entangled at sea and dies at sea, and eventually sinks at sea and never comes back up, then obviously that's a completely cryptic event. But even when we tow them in and we take them apart on the beach, it's already dead. And so while people will ask us what we're doing and what the story is, Somehow there's, there's a disconnect between why they're there, why the, the animal is there, and the the reasons behind it. And you know, if if there were a um, condition whereby dogs or or whatever species were entangled in some kind of line packaging or whatever, and these animals were trailing that, that line around bus stops in a city and people were watching this while they were on their way to work, and they were realizing that these animals were slowly dying over a period of months. The cause of that um, trauma would be subject to extreme public criticism instantly. Well, the same thing's happening at sea, but it's not happening. We've somehow completely failed to relate that story, and it's something that I've um, Struggled with mightily over the last 25 years or so. And the book is, um, you know, trying to make the point that we are all whalers and that we need to step up and be prepared to meet the cost of what it would take to preclude and prevent these events happening, not to destroy the industries that are um, stakeholders in this problem, the fishing industry and the, and the offshore shipping industry in particular. But to figure out how they can be mutually sustainable, along with the lives of these large whales, such as North Atlantic right whales and and humpback whales in this region, and really anywhere in the world where there is um, fixed gear fishing and shipping transport. I mean, we know quite a lot about it in the eastern seaboard because we studied it a lot. But if you start to dig into uh, other places where, where there's been less work done, it's remarkable that Once you start to look for entanglement problems, they're there, and vessel strike problems in the Hurricane Gulf in New Zealand. They're on the west coast of California and Oregon and Seattle. Um, As the whale populations recover in Europe uh, in Ireland and so on, the problems will increase there. There are entanglement problems in Scotland with the minke whales and the humpback whales and the lobster creels in that area. Uh, so it's not just a localized problem in the northwest part of the North Atlantic by any means, for sure. So it's it's, it's been a challenge, and hence I wrote the book. And I, I'm very curious as to um, what kind of an impact the book will have, will people read it, will people understand the message, And and what will the consequences of that be.
1: So with regards to species diversity, so there are many different species of whales, isn't it? Like uh, you already mentioned uh, quite a few of them. I wonder if, are all of them equally susceptible to to these boat strikes and entanglements?
0: Right. Well, that's a very good question. And the answer is uh, they each have their own little human conflict niche, if you like. So um, depending, and it's largely driven by where they go, and what they do when they get there. So if there is a particular feeding behavior habit or diet that a particular whale species is specialized on, then the conflict will depend upon what the humans are doing in that same food chain. So, for instance, uh, when I was in Newfoundland in the um, late 70s, the conflict was between humpback whales and humans, Inasmuch as they were both competing along the same axis of the food chain, the humpback whales wanted to eat the capelin fish, which are a bait fish about seven, eight inches long. And they were being fed upon by codfish and by humpbacks. Humans were trapping the codfish in these big um, net um, traps that were anchored, and the humpbacks would sort of blunder into the traps and get caught in the nets and destroy the nets costs the fishermen a lot of money, and they would potentially drown or swim off with the deer, or they'd be in in place. And so they would get disentangled by a good colleague up there, John Lean. So that, that's the humpback, and they they would have a problem with cod traps at that time. Cod trap fishery actually went away, and that problem shifted into other things. Whereas, say, um, a, a fin whale, which is a um, a faster uh, fish-eating whale, but they, they weren't feeding on, on the capelin there, they, they would have a problem uh, with mobile gear sometimes where you get these two, two vessels dragging nets along side by side and then, then they would get caught in the, in the nets there. Whereas the hump, the right whales are getting caught in, in the ropes from the traps. And so um, depending upon where the whale species is specialized in going and what it's feeding on, the, the different um, mortality patterns can occur. Sperm whales, for instance, are primarily found off the continental shelf in the deep abyssal waters of the oceans. And there isn't so much um, fishing gear out there. So the sperm whales tend not to get entangled. They, they have got entangled in submarine cables at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, they, they've also at times swallowed um, debris that may have washed off the continental shelf down into the bottom, or they may have been inshore as well, but they tend to be in deeper water. Um, <coughs> There used to be a, a driftnet fishery on George's Bank uh, east of here. And that was done pretty much on the very edge of the bank where the drop-off down into the, uh, the deep ocean was. And that habitat, those canyons, are where you'll find beaked whales, which are a, a, a toothed whale about the size of a killer whale, but very cryptic and different animals. And they, they would get caught in, in driftnet gear quite a lot. But those drift nets are no longer there, so they don't have so much of an entanglement problem anymore. But what beaked whales do have a problem with is noise. So sonar exercises, uh, submarines like to hide in canyons, and so sub- submarines and beaked whales have a have a coexistence. And so if you've got a navy ship looking for submarines and flushing them out with sonar, active sonar, then potentially the they have the other target that they hit and, and disturb and cause some physiological problems with. Are big whales, and they've been shown to get uh, issues with decompression sickness and coming ashore with lots of bubbles in their blood. So they, they have a sort of an acoustic trauma problem as opposed to a, a fishing gear pr- trauma problem at this point in time. So we, each, um, each species has its own uh, rough spots when it comes to dealing with the active activities of humans. That makes sense. And so, for instance, the vaquita, which is a small porpoise in the northwest corner of Mexico, there. Um, they have a particular interaction with a gillnet set for a particular fish, the Totoaba. And that species is almost extinct because of, of that very severe interaction. So it depends on where and what and why as to how the particular marine mammal um, and turtle um, interactions between human activities uh, become to be significant sort of hard spots and where, where the interactions are, are most severe.
1: Is it possible to quantify uh, our more, uh, the bigger uh, environmental impact of, of, these, uh, of these issues, the entanglements of, uh, of whales, or has it been done maybe for some species? Um, well,
0: the I mean, in terms of mortality and sort of reduction in the uh, biomass and the biopresence of large whales, there's been a fair amount recently looking at the sort of budgets, the energy budgets that these animals represent, and also the nutrients that they are uh, cycling through the ocean. And so there's there's been all kinds of discussions about the sort of biological and energetic value and what it means to uh, carbon sequestration and so on for these different species. And and one of the um, one of the sort of roots of this is the the idea that um, whales. Very many of them tend to feed up deeper and then come back up to the surface and defecate at the surface. And also, they they also tend to sink when they're dead and then create new islands of productivity for the deep benthos and so on. So, one of the questions that the assumptions that is underlying the the question of bringing the the, the whale pump, as they call it, to bring it up from the bottom. I don't really get into this in the book at all, but it is interesting is that we don't really know if whales only defecate at the surface. No one's really been able to, as far as I know, to actually look at you know, whales deeper down in terms of their defecation rates. And we've joked about making tags that can, the a sort of poopometer, but haven't actually got around to making a poopometer yet. But that's certainly, uh, it'll be an interesting piece to add to the equation of how people are modeling the whale pump and how that all works.
1: And that's a great research proposal title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and also um, different whales have different densities. And so that one of the things that I thought about a lot over the years is how to find dead whales so that we can do better at looking at how they, how, why they died. And right whales, as along with the cousin, the ice loving cousin, the bowhead whales, the baleenid whales, and they are notoriously fat and relatively light. Their density is is lower than, say, a, a sperm whale or a, or a blue whale or something like that. And so when these animals die, if they're in their normal body condition, a right whale will float and a blue whale will sink, which is why right whales were the target for early whalers for millennia before they figured out how to kill blue whales and, and uh, catch them with a with an explosive harpoon that could then bring them back to the ship, so they could be pumped up with air and then they'd float and so on, which opened up the whole mod- modern whaling era. But when you when you have a dark whale that dies, say from a vessel strike, um, a blue whale potentially would sink, but a right whale would float. So that's going to change how how you count the whales too. So it's um, and the other piece to that is that the idea that whales sink as a as an island is true for blue whales or brownbacks or whatever but it's not true for for right whales and bowhead whales because they tend to fall apart at the surface and then the bones start to fall out and they 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 plunge down to the bottom leaving a coat of blubber at the surface which is scavenged by sharks and birds and so every every whale species has its own way of going about life and death
1: so, what efforts so far have been made to mitigate uh, the hardships that whales face? Of course, there's still more work to be done, but are there any success stories?
0: There are, um, and there's some stories with potential, I guess is the way to put it. So, the, um, the vessel strike problem became more apparent um, earlier than the entanglement story. So, I'll tell you that one first. And essentially, there was a... Um, a study done by colleagues in Canada in the Bay of Fundy, folks from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and other colleagues at the Canadian Whale Institute and the New England Aquarium. They looked at the vessel strike problem for right whales in the Bay of Fundy, and they had very good data on at that time a hot spot for right whales between the Bay of the Grand Manan in the Bay of Fundy and the west end of Nova Scotia. And then they looked at the Pattern of shipping through there. And there were some vessel strike problems up there at the time. Right whales were killed by ships. And the vessels were. In, th- there are these things called shipping lanes or traffic separation zones where, um, where ships go up and down on highways, essentially, that are defined on the nautical charts. And they are largely constrained to that to minimize the collision between the ship, one ship and another. So they, they, they pass in the night safely. So they looked at the distribution of the whales and the, pres- the the location of the shipping lanes, and they realized that if they were to move the shipping lanes about five miles to the east, they would reduce the collision risk with the whales that were there at that time by uh, about 80%. So that was a very significant discovery and started a paradigm that resulted in similar shipping lane moves in eastern New England and also on the West Coast and the U.S. and New Zealand and so on. So um, if you can't move the ships, they have to be where they are, then you can also slow them down. So vessel vessel speed restrictions and areas to be avoided have both been um, quite successful at times in reducing vessel pollutions. But the trouble is that neither the ships nor the animals necessarily continue to behave as they had before And so like all biological conservation challenges, you can never sleep because you're forever having to figure out what the next step is. So that's the, that's the collision avoidance story. And it's successful to some degree, but for instance, the North Atlantic right whales moved from the Bay of Fundy when the foods dried up there and water got too warm and they started going around the corner of Nova Scotia into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And so back in 2017 and 2019, especially there were, there's an, epidemic of, of vessel collisions that resulted in the Canadian government having to establish a whole bunch of surveillance and um, mitigation strategies along the lines of slowing ships down and, and moving them around to give the whales a chance to not get hit. So that was the, um, the shipping side of it, and there's actually a parallel story with regards to the entanglement. So to try and minimize entanglement has been a real challenge. Uh, Because very often these entanglements are um, cryptic. We don't necessarily get our hands on the gear that comes with the animals that cause the problem in the first place. And if we do, very often the gear is not uh, identified as to location. So trying to do site-specific modifications of fishing gear to um, reduce the problem has been frustratingly unsuccessful in large part. And it comes down to a fundamental principle that we have been reluctant to face up to, which is wherever there is rope in the water column from whatever source overlapping whales uh, behaving in a way that is risky for entanglement in that rope, they run the risk of getting entangled there. But to actually put your finger on where exactly it occurred and trying to figure out how to re-engineer the rope so it's not going to occur anymore, is a fool's game because ultimately where there's rope, there's risk. And it doesn't matter whether it's a fishing gear thing or or a mooring situation or aquaculture versus a trap versus a trawl. It all depends upon the details as to whether or not they're going to be a problem or not. But ultimately the reality is that because of the way that these situations are so dynamic, wherever there is rope and it's coexisting with whales, then that's going to be a problem. Which is something that is really hard to swallow especially for the industries and the managers and the politicians that are trying to make this all work out because uh, the consequence of what i just said is that uh, we need to in some way have a broad brush in how we're doing these conservation measures to reduce the entanglement problem so having said that the current strategies that are involved are to modify the gear so that there's some weakness, so when they do get entangled, they can break out of it. Uh, that has not necessarily been shown to, although the data have suggests that it will be helpful, uh, previous attempts at weakening rope um, in particular attachments haven't necessarily shown up as being, solving the problem because certainly those attempts of the the entanglement problem has been getting worse and worse over the last 15 years or so. So the alternative is to take a step back and look at what do we have to do to make it all work out, make it sustainable for the fishery industries, the different sectors of the fishery, and also for the whales. And that is to remove the rope from the water column, which is quite heretical in many ways because of the challenges that that represents, and I fully understand that. But if you, um, it's really a question of where do you start from? Do you start from a given that the industry is not going to be impacted and it's going to continue in it the way it's done it forever, or the whales are going to survive? And those two starting points are a very long way apart. But there is somewhere in the middle that I do believe that we can work out a consequence that will be good for both of them, or or adequately good for both. Of them. And so that would be that, um, there can be places where already there are places where we do not allow any fishing for the period of time when the animals are in high densities, such as in Cape Cod Bay in, um, in the spring, early spring of the year or in the Gulf of St. Lawrence where there is, uh, right, right well presence. They, they forbid having, um, any lobster, the snow crab gear at the time. So if there were a way to enable the fishery to have gear in the water without rope in those closed areas, that's a win-win for sure. But once we've done that, then potentially that, uh, quote-unquote, ropeless or on-demand fishing could be used more broadly to uh, sustain the fishery but also give the animals more protection. So that's something that I've been pushing quite hard with a number of colleagues over the last four or five years to figure out how that could be. And it's not a new idea at all. Uh, The use of acoustic releases to allow bottom-mounted gear from an oceanographic research point of view goes back 50 years at this point or more. And the challenge is that those research agendas generally are less budget-constrained than having a significant arsenal of those kinds of um, releases in a routine commercial fishing operation. So so cost is a very significant piece to it. But as I said earlier, it really depends upon what, where do you start. If you start with the assumption that these animals aren't going to be entangled, how do you enable the fishery? Versus if you start with the assumption that we're not going to um, impact the fishery at all, how the whale's going to survive around it. So they're two very different places and it depends upon your values. And that's really what it comes in terms of how those, those two things go. So the way that we are proposing for this on-demand fishery to work is to use available technologies now to retrieve and mark the presence of this fishing gear on the bottom without having any rope coming up to the surface except when it's being retrieved. So you know, normally right now a fishing trap or a lobster trap has either one or more traps along the bottom and a string, and then the end trap or a single trap is attached to a rope that goes up to the surface to a float, which is marked. And so the fishermen or other fishermen or the users of the water know that there's a trap on the bottom and they can use that buoy and that rope to pull the trap up to surface it and get the harvest and put a new bait on it. So any acoustic system has to both enable retrieval and it also has to allow for identification of where this gear is set so others can avoid it and so on so it's a um, early stages yet but we're keen to work with fishermen to do this kind of work to develop the systems that work for them and you know it all comes down to value you know what governmental investment is are people prepared to make through our taxes and through our cost of the products that we want to buy from this luxury seafood that that lobster represents to enable both the fishery and the the industry and the consumer to get what they want and the whales to get what they need. So that's, that's the challenge that we're facing currently.
1: Yeah. These sound uh, like really actionable solutions that you propose with uh, great potentials. And uh, so these uh, are probably more on the local government uh, sort of wide level collaboration uh, levels. What about on the levels of individuals? So with your book, you really try and inspire people to be, um, first of all, to actually know about the issues, you know about what's happening. But uh, what individuals uh, can, uh, can do, do you think?
0: Well, they first of all need to understand the title of the book, We Are All Whales. And if they understand what I'm saying, then they've got a fundamental. Um, knowledge base that I that I have successfully shared, and that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to share what I know, and you know, obviously, I've um, created a well, along with many others, a challenge in terms of how there is a political balance of interest between the communities that are dependent upon these industries to feed their and. Uh, their systems and their people and their children educate the children, and you know create a worthwhile society that is based upon these coastal fisheries and offshore fisheries as well. So, with that respect and that um, understanding and that knowledge, then the question is: How does the consumer then convey his and her um, desire to be supportive of? a mutually sustainable system between the fisheries and the shipping industries and these animals. And, you know, every consumer above the age of voting age has a vote. And were the conservation of the North Atlantic right well to become a politically significant question, then the democratic process should have in its capacity an ability to influence what the expectations are, and the reality is. And so, my hope is that the individuals will be able to um, communicate those concerns to those who are in charge, and those who are in charge are those who are elected officials that have the influence to change what priorities the people working in federal and state governments managing these fisheries and the and the vessel traffic and so on are allowed and asked to do, because if you look at the legislation and the regulations that are present in the U.S., sure, the problem shouldn't be here, because if those regulations were enforced such that, you know, there's a rule that basically says thou shalt not kill more than 0.8 of a right whale in any one year in U.S. waters, well, we've exceeded that ever since that rule's been in place. So if the uh, consumer were to understand the significance of that, And demand it of the elected representatives and make them realize that they're not going to get voted in next time unless they do, then that would solve the problem. Maybe I'm being extremely uh, starry eyed and um, naive, but uh, what else can one do? Because that is the reality.
1: No, not at all. And I think all of us actually want to be informed and uh, many of us are not even myself, even uh, coming back to what you said earlier, that it's a little bit bit harder to empathize with marine mammals as compared to dogs or or cats that we're used to. So I always have to remind myself that there are mammals that they have to go to the surface to breathe and then they can get struck uh, by the boat. So yeah, I think that individuals are, would be really, really interested and your book does a great, uh, great service to really inspire and inform all of us. So I'm just wondering, was there anything that surprised you uh, along your journey uh, to writing We Are All whalers. Well,
0: that's a really interesting question. I, I, I guess the biggest surprise to me was the challenge of finding a publisher. Um, I was fortunate, and I was paid to write the book by a foundation, the um, Bolgano Foundation, and and also by my institution supported my time too. But so there I was at um, maybe the end of 2019 with a first draft. Okay, fine. Let's find a publisher. So inevitably, you start um, crafting book proposal type letters to and sort of lay out what you have, and you know I, I was maybe a little bit. Um, further down the road than many people are when they actually sort of want to need, need money to write the book in the first place. So I, I had the, I had the draft and I started, um, looking at the process and you know, established publishing houses and starting looking at the numbers and recognizing that something like 70,000 books are published every day in the world, mostly self-published and, and so on. And looking at the question of book agents and how that all works and so on. And, and, uh, It was really overwhelmingly depressing in terms of trying to figure out how this is actually going to work. And um, reality pretty much ignored all of the efforts that I was making to find a publisher. And I was fortunately contacted by an editor for the um, University of Chicago Press, Joe Kalamia, who was attending a meeting that I was giving a presentation at in Seattle um, in February of 2020. And so we agreed to have lunch, and I actually met with some other editors at the same time. And uh, Joe liked what I had to share with him, and, and he was extraordinarily kind and helpful in telling me what I was trying to say. And so, uh, an editor who understands what you're trying to say and says, Yeah, it's only a first draft, but we can do okay with this. And so we went through a number of drafts with uh, impact from very meaningful impact from anonymous reviewers and and also a huge amount of help from a, a copywriter. So the surprise to me was um, how challenging it was without some kind of serendipity to actually get a, a publisher to, to take the book. And so I was extraordinarily grateful and happy to work with University of Chicago Press to do what has been done.
1: Yeah, and it worked out really, really well. Yeah, well um... So have you have you ever wondered, <laughs> What would happen if you were accidentally swallowed by the whale? Would would you just sit there with a little campfire?
0: I was swallowed by a whale. Well, I don't know if you're aware, but there was an incident quite recently very close to us here in Provincetown, off the waters of Provincetown, where a very experienced uh, lobster diver who was catching lobsters with a scuba tank and and a bag was um, engulfed by a whale. It wasn't swallowed by a whale, but a humpback whale was cruising by Mindset set on um, gulping up a bunch of small fish that were around. And this guy got um, fully engulfed into the mouth of the whale. And so oh, wow! He, he can tell you the story much better than I can. Uh, and he has done so. It's, it's all over the web today. But I, I believe the story very much so because um, his, his tender the guy that was in the boat waiting for him was a, the son of a colleague of mine. And this guy, knows whales very, very well. And his descriptions certainly sort of were right on. And absolutely, the guy knows a whale from something else. They described how the whale came back up to the surface and spat him out. And this guy was able to find his demand valve, his face mask. He was still wearing his scuba tank, so he was able to survive for about the 40 seconds that he was inside the whale. The whale came back up to the surface and shook his head. and And this guy popped. And he he was, um, his knee was a bit damaged and a bit bruised up, but he no broken bones.
1: That's fascinating. There we go. We've got some scientific data, N of (laughs) 1.
0: Well, actually, there's N of 2. There was another photo-documented event off of South Africa a couple of years ago with a brooder's whale, I think it was. And I forget the details, but there are some photographs in that case. N N of 2, N of 3, if you include Jonah.
1: I suppose people are not as tasty; they just spat them out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, the the thing is that the esophagus, the the, the sort of the food tube for large whales, is actually very small. They don't uh, they they don't eat large things, so it's not not that big at all. So you can't. I I think Jonah is probably a a fictitious. uh, It's a um, mythical mythical story.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So, what are you currently working on and what would be your next project?
0: Well, uh, we've got support from the SeaWorld Conservation Fund to study um, the development of these on demand systems. So, working with colleagues in the US government and some not for profits and also fishermen to develop and improve these systems to make them more viable functional, safe, and affordable. So that's a major project I've got going currently. Um, I also continue to work uh, with other projects that I've been doing over the years, but the new one I've really got going is this this one with the the on-demand fishing systems.
1: Sounds really interesting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also the book?
0: Okay. Well, the book is um, published by the University of Chicago Press um on um, in early October. So it should be available online and in bookstores um that month. And if you just Google We Are All Whalers and Michael Moore, you'll come up with this Michael Moore and the link to the book at both Amazon and Goodreads and, and University of Chicago Press. Um and my work uh if you Google my name, Michael Moore, and Woods Hole Oceanographic, or WHOI, you'll, you'll find, find my website.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a really interesting discussion.
0: Well, thank you for your interest, and I appreciate the interest of people listening to this, and hope they'll enjoy the book and, and do something about it.